Welcome to the Healthy ADHD Podcast. I am your host, Liz Lewis. The Healthy ADHD Podcast is your place to get the best information and hear from the best experts in the field of ADHD. My goal is to make your life better by taking all of this information, making it actionable, understandable, and hopefully inspiring you along the way. It does not suck. Okay, so I am recording this intro while there are five guys in my house finishing up my kitchen. It's the week before Christmas. I really wanted to get this out and ready to go. Today, I have Jacqueline Paul with me. You might recall she's been on the show before. She is amazing. She wrote a book called Order from Chaos, all around how we can, we with ADHD can get organized She talks a lot about getting things done in that system. She has a new app out. At first, we thought we were going to talk about how with ADHD, we have a tendency to make little everyday things mean big things about us and our character. While we did talk about that, we also veered off onto what I think is a pretty important topic. We started to discuss how moms with ADHD have this tendency to emotionally hyper-focus. I think most people with ADHD do this, but when you're a parent and, you know, you're worried about your child or children, it is even more intensified and sort of sometimes a little crazy how we get. So this is a really great conversation. It's kind of a long conversation, so I'm going to get started. With that, I give you, for the second time, Jacqueline Paul. Okay. Today, I have my friend Jacqueline Paul with me. You might recall she was on the podcast. When was that? I don't know. In the spring. It was a while ago. It might have been not this spring, but the last one. Oh, really? Yeah. No, wait. It can't be that long because I didn't even start doing it until February or March. Oh, maybe. (laughs) Well, the years all run together. (laughs) They do. They really do, especially for me. Yeah. Well, we decided that we were going to meet up today. We were going to talk a little bit about women and mothers with ADHD and um, how, I don't know how to phrase it other than to say how we make little things into big things. We make it mean things. How would you describe our notes here? <laughs> our notes. Yeah. Our, our whole page of notes. Um <laughs> Yeah. So there's, I mean, you have the podcast about the ADHD meltdown, I think. And I think those meltdowns sort of hinder us from solving the actual problems that we have. We had that, like you had that anecdote about the, um, like the, one of your clients who like forgot to defrost something. Oh yeah. uh, For the school, like, snack like special snack day or something and that's the kind of thing that triggers like the total meltdown um like when my kiddo was little I asked my husband to stay home from work one day to babysit him while I went to a doctor's appointment and I showed up and they told me your appointment is not today (laughs) it was like the next day and I don't know I I guess it's one of those things that people would say oh everyone does it you know once and Sure, but I walked into the parking garage, I got into my car, and I just had a total meltdown. Um, the complete ADHD, emotional, hyper-focused death spiral, right? Like, 
it wasn't just that, oops, I made a calendar mistake. I rarely actually make a calendar mistake. It was, you know, this is the rest of my life, like making mistakes like this. That's just all I'm ever going to do. My family would be better off without me. Like I'm just a burden to everyone. I just, it, and it just went on and on and on and on and over something really, really dumb. And I think, I mean, that's a little thing that happened that got made into a big thing because the small mistake of, you know, forgetting to defrost the food or messing up your calendar one day, it's because it's not a huge crisis, it's small enough that you can kind of make it about everything. This is just who I am. Um, yeah, it's like we, I always say to people, I think you're assigning a lot of meaning to this. Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, I'm also a fiction writer and I attended this workshop recently about um, portraying emotions in fiction. And the trick is that when you have a scene with huge emotions and like something big is happening, then you sort of downplay it in the way that you write it. But the tinier moments are the ones that you sort of overplay and you can, because they, there's room for you to make it, you know, about these bigger, deeper things. And I mean, that mirrors real life and it's, it, yeah. So we assign so much meaning to the, these little slip ups that happen, you know, like, oh, I didn't clean the bathroom yesterday because I got distracted and didn't stop working soon enough before I had to pick my kid up from the bus. That kind of thing. That's like, this is indicative of everything about who I am. And it's, it's just this huge value judgment about how I'm, everything I've done is a failure now because of this one thing. Yeah. It's funny you say that because you were talking about the the meltdown episode, which I haven't moved over to the new feed yet. Um, yeah, it was, it was one little thing that I thought I made a mistake on, which interestingly, that was a incorrect. When I, when I went back later and checked with the people around me, when it happened, they were like, what? They didn't even know what I meant. Isn't that the best when you have the meltdown about the thing and it mm -hmm. turns out that it wasn't really a thing in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. I really thought that I had screwed up the night that night it, that it started with Dr. Frank. And um, when I went back and asked her, she was kind of like, no, <laughs> <laughs> she was like, no, no. But yeah. Um, and I think I did. I took that night and I thought my whole life is a waste. <laughs> like, I should not have ever started a website. I should have never started a podcast. I should have never started a community. What am I doing with my life? All because of this one thing. I did. I blew it up. I, I really blew it up and I, I made it a character thing. Like obviously Liz, you're not capable of doing the things. And as you were saying about the frozen food or, a, you know, a calendar slip up, I think, yes, we take it and we look at it from this angle of it means everything. This little thing means everything. Yeah. It's well, and I think, so you said women and moms, um, I think women with ADHD, it's this whole, the chores, right? The household chores. And it's this huge powder keg because 
we're, most of us feel like we're just barely staying on top of everything, you know, or just like we're holding it all together. And then, you know, one little failure, it's like, oh, now, like this is, whole thing was a house of cards. And it's just, it's, it's all falling down around me. Like, see, like, I, I'll never get out of this, that kind of thing. And then, I don't know, for me, at least in my kid's former school, his preschool, I often felt like these other moms were very put together in a way that I would never be. And I know the whole comparison thing is, I mean, it's, it's not great and you shouldn't do it. But still, when you're, when you feel like you are the only mom who, whose existence looks like this and, you know, are people looking at me and judging me, that kind of thing. I, I mean, it's just very, there's a large emotional burden there, I think, for, you know, women and, and moms especially that is sort of overlooked. Um, you know, I, ADD can be like a big emotional weight. I completely agree. And we actually were talking in my group about this in the Enclave maybe two weeks ago about how usually when I start out judging myself about something, some little perceived failure, I start out judging myself. But then let's say you go to preschool or you go to the gym or whatever. And for some reason I start out blaming myself and then I start comparing to everyone else. And I realized that when you see someone at preschool, it's not a reflection of what's going on in their home. You don't know. know. But in your head, you start to feel, I start to feel, maybe you don't do this, but if it starts with me, I start to project it. Like I start to feel angry at those other moms. Like, you know, she has it so easy. Like, obviously she doesn't have ADHD. Yeah. <laughs> obviously her car doesn't have as much junk in it as mine. <laughs> you know, or like I would be on top helpful. of things too. If I had enough money to have like a nanny and a house cleaner come in, like surely my life would be great also. <laughs> like, well, that's what I mean. But I start projecting all these things onto these other women who did nothing to me. But I start oh, to no. project all these things onto them like, well, obviously she has it easy. Like, obviously she must have a housekeeper or someone's doing her kids laundry because <laughs> someone's cleaning out her car for her. <laughs> like, I don't understand. <laughs> and it's, it's all in my head. And it all stems from some little thing. Some little thing that happened yesterday or last night. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if neurotypical moms spend as much time comparing themselves to other moms as we do. Maybe they do. That's a good question. I mean, there are, I mean, there's that whole cliche, like the mommy wars or, or, you know, but I I don't know. I don't know. I think maybe if we perceive our inner chaos in a certain way and we assume that others are not experiencing that inner chaos and I don't know. But I do, I actually got a little flack from a reader, you know, when I post, first posted it. I, I had this post about emotional hyperfocus, but it's, I mean, that's what this is when you have that meltdown about the thing. Um, and it's so, I, I mean, I tell people, no, people with ADD are like five times more at risk for intentionally harming themselves. And so it's not like, I don't know, people talk about hyperfocus, like it's the, it's one of the ADHD superpowers and 
you know, I always come back with this, well, no, not really, because you have no perception of time, which is great if you're really happy. It means that you can't perceive any of the things that made you upset. And, you know, if you're working on something that's really fun and great and productive, fine. You know, but during that meltdown, when you can't perceive at all that you still have worth in the world and that people like you, that that's pretty terrible. And it's, I mean, it's a serious thing that I don't hear people talk enough about the strategies to like come out of that. Um, but, and that's why in my book, I try to talk more sort of objectively about this stuff that's, yes, it has this whole emotional layer, but you kind of need to separate that out if you're going to actually make it better. I think the problem, and I agree with you, and I actually have invested time and money and, you know, therapists and coaches and stuff to show me ways of teasing out some of the emotional stuff. But going back to the, the hyper-focus part of it, I, I remember the emotional hyper-focus article. And I do think that's a thing. And I think for some of us, that is, for, at least for me, I think I emotionally hyper-focus on things much more than I hyper-focus on some task, like some external task, some cleaning thing or some even project. Yeah, um, I definitely do too. I, I do. And I also agree with you about the hyper-focus is not, I don't consider it some kind of superpower. For me, it causes me more trouble than anything. And even if I like what I'm doing, the problem is going to be stopping and transitioning, set shifting to the next thing. And that's really tough when you're a mom and say, I, I am doing a podcast with you today and not that we're going to be on here for hours, but let's say we were talking and I needed to stop our interesting conversation and go get my kid from the bus stop. That would be an issue. Yeah. And I would be grouchy for the next hour because I had to set shift from a conversation I was enjoying to being a mom. And that, that's, that's a shitty feeling. I totally had that. I had that yesterday because I was working on something. Um, like I was doing app development work and I was like, ah, oh, there are this, these, a couple lines of code away from getting this thing working. And I knew I needed to clean the bathroom before I was having like people over for a meeting later that evening. And so I knew I needed to clean the bathroom first. And I was like, okay, but I, if I clean the bathroom, I know how long that takes. I will have time to finish this task. But my kid had a half day at school. And so he was hanging out. He asked if he could play Minecraft. I said, yes. Well, this thing came up in Minecraft that was like, you have to log into your Microsoft account. And I didn't know what that, like what his Microsoft account was. And it wasn't in the document that my husband and I keep to keep track of this stuff. And so I had to get, I, I, and I was like, fine, let me like see if your dad's around and I'll see if he, and he could tell me and I did get it, but it took 15 minutes and then something else took 15 minutes by, before I knew it, cleaning the bathroom and doing my other basic work for the day, it, then my, my time was up. And I didn't get to, you know, finish the like fulfilling like app work that I wanted to do. And I did, I felt so, I don't hyper-focus super easily on a lot of tasks. And I was like, oh, wow, like I'm having a big like resentment issue right now because I just wanted to finish up what I was doing. And like this thing happened, which was totally reasonable. It did, it feels really bad and 
my son and my husband are such bigger hyper-focusers than I am. And it, it contributes to a lot of unrest, shall we say, if it's not managed. Because, you know, it's that having to, like, disengage from something that your brain has really latched onto. Um, it's definitely, I mean, it's, I think it's very problematic. And it's not something that you necessarily can choose and direct you know, great if it's something that you're supposed to be working on. But in our house, a lot of the times it's not. And that's not a satisfying feeling afterward. If someone spends an entire day doing one thing and like, I've asked them to do another thing. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, and it, I do think the, what's going on when we have one of these, I call it the negative thought vortex. Yeah. I talked about like the ADHD meltdown, but I think that's what's happening when we are emotionally hyper-focusing on some little thing and blowing it up uh, in our mind. When even if somebody tries to disengage you from it, it's almost like your brain is resisting disengaging in the same way as if you're doing something that you want to keep doing. It's your brain has latched onto it. And even someone trying to pull you out of it, even though that's, objectively speaking a good thing it's still you're going to resist it and be like no like you know you're just saying that because you're tired of hearing me be upset and I, I know I've said something like that before I'm, I'm sure if my husband were here he would confirm exactly that that I've said stop it you're just trying to calm me down and I don't want that because I'm upset and I have a reason to be upset and then later on I always come back and say you know what I had a complete meltdown about something stupid. I'm sorry. That was a lot of feelings for something that was really stupid. But at the time, I had no perspective at all. As I shared in that podcast, I have to make the decision myself if I'm going to fix it. Yeah. Even if it was something, I mean, the, the example we gave about my client with the frozen dessert, even something like that, I would stew around about it, but then I'd have to make a decision that, okay, Liz, obviously you're making a thing about this. It's been 48 hours. You're still stewing about this frozen pie. Like you need to stop. And I would, I literally have to force myself sometimes to sit down and work backward and figure out where it started, why it started, what the original thinking was at the moment. Like it takes me a while to go through it. Yeah. I, um, I found one thing that I can do is yeah, if I choose to, I can sit down and I can close my eyes and I can try to think through a situation that's not that. And when my kitchen was being renovated, um, one of many meltdowns I had at that time, because it was a time of great chaos and just dis like disruption. I'm going but, through it right now. Oh, it's so bad. It was, <laughs> I, it was like being off my meds. It was horrible. And I was just, I had annoyed my husband in a really minor way. He was just like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I just want to go to sleep because it was like nighttime. And I, I just could not let it go. And for some reason at that time, I actually, I don't usually do this, but I actually realized that not letting it go would be a problem with him if I just kept badgering him to continue the conversation because he had already told me, this is not a big issue. I won't care about it tomorrow. Like just, I don't want to talk about it anymore. But I just got so upset because I could not let it go. And I knew that I couldn't continue to bother him about it because that would be bad. 
And I just started having this really like terrible, you know, thought vortex freak out. And I just sat downstairs and I, all I did was I pictured a time when the kitchen was no longer a mess and it was done and we were just having people over and it was a normal dinner time and I was like cooking dinner. And the more I imagined that, it was like a fog was lifting or something. And I just, it, and then all of a sudden, whatever I had argued with my husband about, like didn't matter anymore because it never mattered. <laughs> it had just been the thing that I was focusing on. You know, that's the kind of thing that I wish that more people have talked about and, you know, taught those kind of skills because at the time you can rationalize it any which way that, yeah, I have every right to be this upset. And it can be very damaging to people who are around you and are seeing you get this upset about something like that. And it's stressful to them. And if you lash out at them for trying to be helpful, you know, it's much better to kind of have your own strategies for calming out of that. And it just, like, I never see people talking about that. I see more people talking about, like, don't tell me to calm down kind of thing. Um, which, yeah, telling someone to calm down is not helpful most of the time. But the, also, sometimes the solution is we do just need to calm down. and you know, we've gotten into a very bad place mood wise and we're going to rationalize it by trying to justify why like this thing is important enough for that level of emotion. And, you yeah. know, a lot of, I feel like me neurotypical people like have trouble dealing with that and very understandably. Well, in, um, Anthony Rostain and J. Russell Ramsey's book, they actually do at least two or three times in the book say directly, that ADHDers, because of the executive function challenges and the uh, prefrontal cortex issues, yeah. we aren't really good with self-talk. From what I understand, and I'm not, I'm not a doctor, but from what I understand, neurotypical brains are better able to talk themselves through these things. So if something happens, they get, like my husband will get frustrated about something, whatever it is, just frustrated. He will come downstairs because we're living in the basement. He will come downstairs and he will be like, la, 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 I got to do this and I got to do that. And I got to change all this stuff because he works in IT. I got to do all this stuff. And then I'm like, oh, I'm sorry you're so frustrated. And he'll be like, yeah, but really all I have to do is do this. And then I'll just do this and then I'll do that. And literally in 30 seconds, he's talked himself around, like through it. For me, that would be a week of like, I'm going to lose my job. Everybody hates me. You know, and he will talk himself out of it in about 30 to 60 seconds. And that's amazing to me. I've watched him do it several times. (laughs) And I mean, I guess there is, what I'm saying is there is a medical basis probably for some of a medical, you know, neurological basis for some of our issues with this. Yeah. But I will say as a mom, and this probably happens to dads with ADHD too, when you need that time to work through it, like you said, you went and you closed your eyes and you were thinking, I have to do like a thought download. Sometimes you can't get the time, you know, like if it's a Saturday afternoon and my family's like, we got to do this, let's go to Target. And I'm like, just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. I have issues. People leave me alone. And as a mom, as a parent, do you ever feel like you're never alone? Like you're never alone to just do what you need to do for yourself. 
I mean, I'm unpredictably alone. Um, so because I, I mean, during the day I, you know, have my like work day when my kids at school and then I'm always alone. But sometimes if he, you know, if he's home, if it's a school break, if there's a half day um, and he's home with me, sometimes he has a project that he has thought of for himself that he has his stuff that he wants to do and he'll go do it and he'll be in the basement with his Legos for hours and it'll be like, I don't exist. But then sometimes he'll sit at his little desk in my office here and he'll be working on stuff, but he'll be talking to me constantly about what he's working on. And so I never know when he's home with me what kind of day it's going to be. And for me, unpredictability is the worst thing. If I just knew, all right, for this one day, I'm going to be talked to all day. It's going to really fry my circuits. I have trouble dealing with it, but that's just what it's going to be. I think it would be easier than not knowing what to expect and then having to just go with the flow because I, I don't go with the flow. That's a, you know, very strong character trait of mine is that I do not go with the flow usually. And even if you have a kid that does their own thing, sometimes your alone time and your time to like really get deep into whatever you're needing to do is very unpredictable. And, you know, even I was years ago when I had a different job, I was at work one day and my boss one of her kids was still in high school and she got hit by a car walking home from school. And she was, I mean, fine. She, but she had broken her leg. And so, you know, my boss just dropped And This is, you know, some, a very demanding person usually of us, like our presence at work, but it was an instructive experience for everybody because she just dropped everything and ran out the door and you never know when something like that is going to happen as a parent. You know, even if it's not a, you know, catastrophic injury, you get a call from, you get a call from school, you know, my kid's, you know, principal or teacher calls to tell me like something that he did at school or whatever, that disrupts your whole mental flow. Like, I was just going to say know. that part of my issue is even when my son's at school, I never know when I'm going to get a call. Or yeah. Yeah. My, my son has ADHD and Asperger's and he, he will have, he'll be great for months. And then one day he will just be why Like he will just be off the wall. And I never know when it's going to happen. I can't predict it. I can't see it coming. And I do have a lot, a low level of anxiety every single day he's at school. Yeah. Yep. Well, no, and I'm thinking, and I try not to check it, but there's this app that um, my son's teacher uses that she can assign points to kids for different behaviors. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, on task or helping others or, um, and then those are positive ones that add to their sort of cumulative score. And then there are the, you know, ones that take away, like, you know, not following directions or whatever. Um, and it, she's not really serious about it. And, it, but he's, he's into it. He's like, oh, you know, what, what's on, what's on class dojo today? And, you know, so I try not to look at that during the day because I don't want to monitor what he's doing and be like, because if, if he's like not having a good day at school, I can't let that derail my entire like day's work. 
and it will because I'll have that that baseline anxiety will go from you know down here to like more in the middle and then I'll need to check it again like oh well you know is there a positive thing now and it's yeah I, mean, I am it's funny you say that I was going to ask you like I have my son is on a behavioral plan of sorts and he gets points and if he goes below a certain point level then he can't get his reward at the end of the day and when he they send the sheet home if it says, you know, on the sheet that he was a level two or whatever, mm -hmm. that will talk about a thought spiral. Do you know what I mean? Every time I get one of those, I start to like in my head, like I go down this crazy spiral of like, my son doesn't do well with authority figures. He's never going to have any friends. He's never going to be successful in school. He's not going to graduate. He's not going to go to college. He's going to be like a criminal. He's going to end up in one of those reform schools. Like, uh, this is, I, I, what are people going to think that there's something weird in our home? Like I literally go down this, this in like less than a minute, you know, and I just have, and I freak out and it happens, you know, once a week in my house. So what, what are in your mind when, when you're in one of those situations, talk about emotional hyper-focus when it comes to your kid, I don't know. What do you think are the best ways to deal with that on an so, ongoing basis? <laughs> I actually... I, I just started writing, like, outlining a post about my response to getting a call from my son's principal the other day about, um, it, it was, it's actually a weird situation, and it was because another kid had apparently not spoken to the teacher or anybody. He went home and told his mom that my kid was messing with him and bullying him and all this and the mom called the principal and the vice principal instead of the teacher so I get a call from the principal about how you know an, a, a parent wants her to set up a meeting with her and me so that we can talk about this bullying issue and that was hard because you know part of you wants to be defensive of your kid and then part of you is embarrassed that this is, and this was a kid whose name I had never heard in my life too. That was the other thing. I was like, what the heck? But it always is. It's always somebody you don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like, I'm embarrassed, you know, it's, I'm sort of having to think on my feet, you know, I want to defend him. But at the same time, there's like a part of me that is always like, you know, a little mad too, mm -hmm. that come on, dude, you know better than this. And, you know, I want to read him the right act. Um, in this particular time, I definitely, I was like, okay, I can't actually, I'm talking to the principal and it's clear that no one has any information. No one has any actual information here. And that's why we're having this, you know, I, I think that the premise for this meeting may be flawed, but it's the opportunity I've been given to, resolve the situation and clear up a misunderstanding. So, you know, I can't freak out about the fact that the meeting's happening. I just need to go to it. But I actually sat, what I do regularly is I sat, like when I'm on the phone, anything that matters, I sat and I took notes and I, and so that I could tell, because that's the other thing is that I had to like tell my husband later that this had happened. And I had to remember enough of the conversation to tell him accurately. Um, but I did, I took notes and I just, I tried to stay very neutral and just, you know, thank you for the information. Um, and then I asked him later and yeah, it turns out, the whole, I, you know, it's, it is an odd situation. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, maybe it plays into, I guess, what we haven't talked about yet, the like, you know, viewing our sort of way of managing our lives more as like a sort of a, a machine than like a more emotional thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, because the more I can be objective about something and just take down all the information so that I can look at it and sort of process it from that perspective, the better off I am. Because, you know, if I freak out to the like school people, that's not going to help. If I freak out to myself, that's not going to help. You know, if I get really upset and he sees that he's made me upset, he's going to feel bad. Mm -hmm. And if I flip out at him and make him feel like shamed and punished, then he's not going to tell me, like, there's information about this situation that only he has. And he's not going to share it with me if I'm uh, like acting like a lunatic and yelling at him about how I don't appreciate getting a call from the principal about him messing with somebody on the bus. And uh, I've talked to the principal before, Jacqueline, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, you know what I found out in these situations? And it's, I don't fear the principal as much as I used to, because I did make a decision very early on in kindergarten, actually, that I wanted to have a relationship with the school, a working yeah. relationship with the school. And so I was never, even when I totally disagreed with them, I was never going to talk about it in front of my kid. I tell my husband. Yeah but I don't talk about it in front of him. I really did want to have a relationship with the teachers, you know, with the emotional support teacher and with the principal. So I have maintained that. What I did figure out about these kind of situations, my kid has never been, like I've never had a parent actually say anything about my child. What's interesting is I have had parents tell me that the school overreacted, that they have no interest in, like they're not mad at me <laughs> and they don't understand why the school made a big deal out of it. I've had parents oh, more funny. say that to me. So sometimes the powers that be blow things up in a way that, that almost wasn't necessary. Now that parent, I mean, if she doesn't, she or he doesn't know you, it would have been harder for them to approach you. I live in an area where half of the kids, my son goes to school with, I know their parents, his, yeah, I know their parents because I went to school with them. So it was easy for me to, you know, contact someone and be like, I heard my kid totally tackled your kid on the playground today and hit him and this and that. And the mom was like, uh, really? She was like, you know what? I have five boys. I do not care. And she was like, <laughs> obviously the principal is making a much bigger deal out of it than it needs to be. And she was like, that's ridiculous. She's like, forget it. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> and yeah, I was like, I'm Okay. <laughs> I'm hoping that, you know, once I get a chance to talk to this other parent and establish that actually, I mean, my kid is very, he's very sensitive. He's definitely not a sociopath and he's not targeting anyone, but it is, I mean, it's a hard thing. And it's, it's also difficult when you have the kid who, he doesn't have an IEP or a 504 plan and, you know, academically he's, fine. I mean, he just kind of breezes by things, um, which is yeah. what I did, but also like me, he has a little bit more of the like behavioral, emotional overreaction issues. Mm -hmm. And so we have him here, we call it the student support team. And so he has a whole plan to address his, you know, behavior in school and whatnot, you know, but it's, 
it's hard when you, I feel like, you know, well, my kid is requiring all these sort of resources and attention and he's, you know, distracting from the learning environment sometimes. It's hard for me then to do the, you know, mom thing that I'm supposed to do and be present at the school and volunteer for stuff once in a while and, you know, show my face in the, in the office when, you know, I know and they know that, you know, and I'm not saying that I think of my kid as the problem kid all the time, but that moment when you're walking into the school office, you're definitely like, for me, I definitely feel it when I walk in the door. I just feel like when people look at me, they know that like my kid is that kid, even though he's also very sweet. And they all, despite the fact that he gets sent to the office all the time, they still all really like him. You know, it's so. Yeah, I'm the same way. I hope my husband hears you. Maybe I won't delete that part of our podcast. <laughs> he can hear it. Because um, my husband always says to me, why are you, so, why do you, why do you take this personal? Like, why are you sad? Why are you embarrassed? Why are you, you know, he doesn't understand that part of it. And I'm like, listen, I just, it's hard for me to walk into my elementary school that I went to. <laughs> to talk oh, because it's your elementary school too. Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's hard. And when you know, you know, there's, there's, there's good and bad to the fact that I know all the parents too, right? Because we grew up together. So everyone knows Liz has the, the kid. Like everyone knows Liz's kid has, has some things, you know, and it's, it's embarrassing. It is, it is. It's just, yeah. And then I feel bad because I'm embarrassed. Like, you know, it's yeah. just this whole thing yeah. and it's, but yeah, it's hard. And our, I mean, our neighborhood school, it's a very like tight knit community. Our block is, I mean, there are like, I don't know, 17 kids or something on our block. I mean, it's just, it's a very sort of close community. It's not the typical, like, you know, I, I feel like people think about the city and they don't think of it as being that much of a personal experience that you can sort of blend in. But in our neighborhood, you definitely can't um, because everybody does know everybody and, you know, it's a close community. And so it is difficult to walk in and be like, yep, well, okay, here I am. You know? Remember me? But yeah. <laughs> they used to, you know, they used to buzz me in, in the K through two building. Cause they knew me. I would literally walk up, ring the bell and they would buzz me in. They didn't even ask who I was or anything. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so I have a question and I'm going to look at our notes because I'm being very responsible right now. Okay. Um, how do we stop this cycle though? You know, we've been talking about how we react to our kids and we've talked about how we react to our own little foibles. But I mean, what do you think, I don't know, what is the key to really, to really dealing with this cycle, this emotional hyper-focus thing? For me, there was a big paradigm shift when I just, I started thinking about it differently. And I, I still do like go down the rabbit hole plenty often. Um, but when I do, I think knowing what emotional hyper-focus is and why it happens because it all ties back to time blindness right i feel like all all adhd roads lead to time blindness it's terrible but it's because we can't perceive anything outside that um, and that's where the big sort of feelings come from so it, it helps to understand it um, but also in terms of the daily maintenance of you know chores and stuff um, and you know just mom the the mom stuff it's not drudgery but you know what i mean um there's a chapter in my book that i 
almost, you know, I wasn't going to include it because uh, I thought it's too sort of focused on my own sort of nerdy analogies. But then a neighbor of mine shared something with me. It was a TED talk about agile for your family. Um, and it was about agile software development and yeah. family life. And I was like, oh, so this is an analogy that, you know, regular people can make. Because my, my neighbor who sent it to me was, it's totally not into that. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, if this really struck a chord for her, then maybe I should put the Agile chapter in. So, you know, it's in there. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's, yeah, the chapter is called Be Agile, How We Can View Organizing Systems Like a Piece of Computer Software. But... You know, it, so it's all about sort of optimizing your, you know, life and making stuff easier for you um, and making, making things simpler. The, one of the big agile things is maximize the amount of work not done, uh, which I really sort of love because you think you read it wrong at first, like, wait, maximize the word not done. Um, it's like, but it's a variant of work smarter, not harder is a good reminder to me that, you know, work is hard and we don't like to do extra work. And so we sort of need to find something that works for us. And if it's not working, um, another analogy I use in the book is the, like the car. And, you know, if your car breaks down, it's not, you're not going to have a meltdown about how it's so bad at being a car, right? Like, it, and you're also not going to feel ashamed of needing to take the car to a mechanic to help figure out what's the matter with it. Um, you know, it's a thing that's broken. You might not know how to fix it and it needs to be fixed for you to continue doing your stuff. Um, and so for me, I, I like to view sort of my way of keeping my life in order and managing my family stuff like that that if something's not working it's because part of the system is broken and i need to figure out what it is and i might need help to figure out what it is and then fix that broken component and the broken component isn't me right um you know i am a component and the fact that there are certain things that are more challenging for us that really matters and so you sort of need to tune things to what you need and take care of your own sort of cognitive needs so that you can do these things. Um, but if something is failing persistently, it's not because, you know, it's not a character flaw. Um, you know, I stopped doing my getting things done weekly review once. And at first I was like, ah, well, you know, what's going on? But then I realized, like, oh, I need to, my medication wasn't working right anymore. Like I actually needed to switch medications. I think it was a hormonal thing, like after I had my kid. And it just, it straight up wasn't working. And so it wasn't that I was like, look at me, like I found this weekly review is so helpful and now I'm such a failure because I can't even keep doing that. Like, look, just like everything else, I stopped doing the helpful thing and now my life is going to fall apart and, you know, like go cry in a corner. Um, I've definitely done that. <laughs> but it was, but it, you know, that's a good example of like, that's not the problem. <laughs> the problem was that my medication wasn't working. I switched medications you know, and things started going way better. You know, it's like a little thing might not be working. And 
you know, if you find that out, you know, what is that, the little thing that's not working? And just, you know, if you think of it like a piece of computer software, like finding a bug and fixing it, or, you know, a car, like finding the broken part and fixing it, like, that's not an emotional thing. And like fixing, fixing things about your household management really shouldn't be either. It's just, we make it that way. Oh, we do. We definitely do. Yeah. And it's one of those things where we sometimes, you know, you're, when, you, when you're looking for what's going wrong in the larger machine, right? When you're looking for whatever's not working within the car, <laughs> um, it's really easy to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yes. <laughs> and I do that all the time with, with my business stuff. I'll do that. Like, oh, this didn't work really well. Or this particular, you know, piece of writing just didn't go over as well. And I should just burn the house down. Yes. <laughs> Forget it. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, I had this whole argument with my husband once because I was trying to give him suggestions about, this is great, like giving your spouse suggestions about how they could better organize their tasks. Um, not a great idea, but I did it. And, you know, but then he got very bristly and he, he was like, well, this is what having ADHD is. This stuff won't work because I have ADHD it will not work. And just so stop trying to pressure me about it because I can't change who I am. And something about who I am means this won't work. And I was like, oh, okay. It's actually true. Like, no, nothing lasts, but that's kind of true for everybody also. And it's, you know, you will fall off the bandwagon. And it, to me, I'm like, yeah, I've failed at this stuff a million times. Yeah, it didn't work for me either. But it's about how you like, you know, do your scrappy little climb back up onto the bandwagon <laughs> that, that really defines it. And I think that that's another big thing is like allowing, your, allowing yourself to fail at stuff sometimes and realizing that that's like part of everybody's life. And, you know, sometimes it's an indicator that you need to fix something. But, you know, sometimes it's just, well, I spent six weeks getting my kitchen renovated and everything sort of fell to pieces and it's going to take me a while to dig out. But that doesn't mean that like, because I have ADHD, like these systems just flat out won't work for me ever. And I should just give up. It's like, no, you can dig out and like a failure is not permanent. It, you know, as long as you start digging, however slowly. Well, there's two big things that keep coming to mind is the black and white thinking. We think if yeah. one part of our household routine fell, you know, fell by the wayside, it, it's all, it's all waste. And, and what you were explaining about your husband, I can't tell you how many people have said to me, I can't change. I can't yeah. change. I can't, every time I try to do something, it doesn't work. I get bored with it. I can only sustain it for a week or two. Yeah. You have to tweak it. But yeah, with a lot of ADHDers, and I don't want to say all, but with a lot, the belief is I can't change. They don't think they're capable of change. Yeah. So well, and you know, you can't, not all of a sudden, and you can't, ensure that things are never going to be difficult. And that was this other thing that came up in this discussion with my husband is that he had this perceptive perception that it was easier for me somehow. Like the reason that I had been able to maintain certain things is because I just somehow came more easily and structure itself may come more easily to me because I always, even when I was a teenager, I remember things that I did to calm myself down when I was freaking out, make lists 
you know, I would like write things down. Um, you know, writing in a notebook has always been like a self-soothing thing for me. So yeah, like there are some natural things about me that make it easier, but it's also just because I feel so um, reliant on those things at this point, I also feel invested in, even if I do burn the house down, <laughs> you know, metaphorically speaking, I do still feel like, okay, well, time to put it all back together, I guess. And then, you know, that's where the sort of like mini habit approach comes in that, you know, my, my office is a big one because it gets, you know, if one part of the house gets neglected and messy, it's my office because it's like my room. Um, and I'll just be like, okay, well, this week I'm going to put one thing away every day. Like I'm going to clean up one thing you know, oh, there's one piece of paper on the floor. All right, I'll put that in the recycling. All right, that's it. Like, I can check this off as a success. And they often, you know, once you start, it's that task inertia that also comes with ADHD that it, there is a, an element of sustainability too that in the Agile chapter, um, I have a heading about sustainable systems that you should be able to maintain a constant pace indefinitely. And yeah, stuff happens, but like there's a big push with ADHD at the beginning when you're like, yeah, like this is the thing that's going to solve all my problems. Like this new system, like, yeah, we're putting this sticker chart on the wall or we're like, you know, I bought this new like thing to organize the mail that, you know, and you just like really dive into it head first and you have all this like novelty energy that's happening. And then a few weeks later, he was like, oh, this is actually a lot of work. Like, no, like maximize the amount of work not done. <laughs> and also, you know, build a system that you can actually do on a normal week. And, um, you know, a crazy week, things might go a little by the wayside, but like, you know, build something that you can actually do. And sometimes that means that you're not doing stuff the way that everybody else does. But well, that's the other thing is I think we, we want to fix things. We want to fix things and we want, we want it to appear that we are passing for typical, right? Like, like everybody, yeah. everybody wants to just fix it. Can I just find some system, some, uh, well, somebody just asked me again recently, why don't I, I don't make a home binder, like a home management binder. What's that? <laughs> I've seen them. I actually follow a girl who makes a really cute one. It's really cute. You download it. It's a couple hundred pages maybe. It's very cute. But I wouldn't spend the three hours it would take to fill the whole thing in to get it started. You know? oh, is it like your home insurance information or something? Like centralizing yeah, all the... That in there. Yeah, you can oh, put that we in got there. one of those from our mortgage company when we bought our house. I mean, I shove paint chips in there when we repaint a room. Like, I, there's a little pocket that I put the paint chips in. I wouldn't have made it myself, but... But I think that <laughs> we have this tendency to think that we just need to follow the right guru or we need yeah. to um, have the accountability of a really expensive coach, right? And I've, I've said this before. I think that coaching is fabulous, but coaching also, there's a, there's a, it's time limited, it's going to end. And then what? So yeah. if you don't have that person to check in with every day, I don't know what you do after that. There's, there's coaching. There's, I don't know. I don't know. But ADHDers love this, right? I'm going to, this new thing is going to fix my problem. It's going to fix me. It's going to, you know, make everything better. And then when it doesn't work or we can't sustain it, then we either get bitter or we get sad. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned tiny habits. I have been into small, sustainable habits since before James Clear made it cool. Yeah. Um, 
I when it's this whole thing now, because I read this book by Stephen Geis, and his I mean, it's called Mini Habits. But now there's another one, Atomic Habits, and there's there's all these other things. I kind of feel bad because I, you know, on his behalf, because I'm like, oh man, you know, who had this idea first? Like, you know, it's everybody is writing a Mini Habits book as though they're the only one writing about it. It's kind of weird, but yeah. Um, habits. And I've been writing yeah. about habits, Jacqueline, since 2015, and nobody listened to me back then. <laughs> but I've been talking about habits and how having some habits and routines in place that have to be tweaked periodically are like essential to my life. I can't run my life without certain habits and routines in place. And I, I love the idea of small, sustainable habits over time. When just and, things to help you touch the goal, like it just just to interact with it, not, you know, something that's going to make, oh, if I only do this much every day, I'm ever going to meet my goal. No, but enough that'll get past, enough that you don't have any resistance to doing it. That That's my whole thing. Like my, right now I have, you know, my little like habits that I outline every week. One of them is a single yoga pose, which is like, yes, if I do ragdoll pose right before I get into bed, that counts. But like sometimes I do a 30 minute yoga practice and that also counts. But like if I said 30 minutes yoga every day or even three times a week, I wouldn't do it. And it wouldn't become a habit because I'd be like, oh, well, I just can't like, I don't have the energy for that today. There's a guy named BJ Fogg. And one of the things he teaches is to start with things that take less than 30 seconds. Yeah. Like he actually gave the example Say you're going to floss one tooth. That's how I started flossing. Did yeah. I post that yet? I'm going to look in my buffer. Yeah. It might be, it, oh, it would be really funny if that was my post for today because, um, yeah, yeah, today, December 5th, it's scheduled for 4.06 p.m. <laughs> this is my Facebook share. It's from Stephen Guys, the mini habits guy. Um, but the title of his post is why I started flossing daily for the first time at age 34 Mm -hmm. And my commentary on that is the way that I started flossing was that I was like, okay, I really talked myself up to it. I was like, you only have to do one tooth, only one, one tooth. And then you can just walk out of the bathroom, like throw the floss away. I know it's going to be uncomfortable, but just one tooth. <laughs> and now I floss all my teeth every day, but like, that's how I started. And, but that's how you have to think about it to form a habit. You know, you, you have to have a goal that's, like, embarrassing to admit that that's your goal. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're not embarrassed, it's not low enough yeah. for, a daily, for a daily habit. It's just not. What are we talking about? I feel like we went way off our track. We no, talked more about parenting and household management than... Um, no one is going to believe us know. that we had all these notes. The moral of the story is, I think, that this emotional hyperfocus is a real, real thing. Yeah. And to us making small things really big things. Yeah. Yeah. When that was, I mean, in our notes, you know, that was what we were, we, we were outlining is the emotional hyperfocus sort of blocks you from viewing it as just a thing. Um, because it is just a thing, even when it's your family life, you know, that my kid was never ready to walk out the door for school on time. Like not one day, not one day, but it's easy to be like, wow, you know, other families are not this much of a circus every single morning. Maybe that's true. I suspect it may not be because the number of people who complain about 
mornings with their family. But it, it's just another system that needs fixing, even though it can get very emotional with the whole family yelling at each other and everyone's mad and, you know, you make your kid walk out to the car and his bare feet in the winter because he didn't bother to put his shoes and socks on in time, that kind of thing. But like, it just, it's, it's a matter of figuring out why it's happening. And um, sometimes we do need that external scaffolding to establish a habit. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that he's never going to be able to get dressed on time without being rewarded because eventually it just became a total like it was an automatic habit that he would just go get dressed. You know, once it was ingrained, that was fine, but it did take like a little bit extra, you know, real. And I was like, Oh, I do this for myself with my habit hearts that, you know, I, I wrote about my habit hearts that, you know, I color in with crayons every day and, and whatever. I mean, that's the same concept. And so sometimes you do need to focus on like a micro version of a habit you know and there's like totally nothing wrong with that (laughs) I don't know but if we just tried to keep solving this like morning routine problem by yelling and like punishing and whatever it just it would still be a problem and it's not anymore because it just you know we went at it in a more pragmatic way and Mm -hmm. you know that's that's my big thing is like separating the feelings from whatever system it is that's failing, you know, whether it's like a relationship or, you know, a to-do list. How do you do it? Tell me again how you oh, separate, separate the feelings. I mean, I think it, honestly, it's just like a rote practice, um, you know, and it also, I mean, it helps if you like have some work that you do that involves sort of that either mechanical or like software, like thinking like, all right, so this is a thing and it's broken. Like, okay, you know what? I just think that, but the more you can sort of reinforce that concept and get used to like sitting down and like taking notes about like objectively what's happening and then sort of what's one small thing that you could do to like try to tune that a little bit. Um, you know, what's actually happening, what could be a factor here, you know, what's a, what is it, what's a variable, like, when my medication wasn't working anymore. It's just, I I mean, I'm a big note taker, because I think about things by writing notes down, and, like, processing things through writing, Um, but I think writing down what's actually happening can be a good way to sort of take away its emotional power a little bit. Um, there's something that happens in your brain when you yep, actually like, write about an experience. You know, sometimes I do like make a bulleted list about, you know, my feelings about what's happening, but also, you know, what is actually happening. Like, all right, so we're not getting out of the house every day on time. Like what's happening there? You know, what's getting, what could be the problem? Um, that sort of thing. I probably say it a lot better in my, you know, that chapter of the book. I'm a better writer than I am a talker. Like a failure is not permanent and it's not, I mean, it's important not to generalize things too much. That, you know, if today I, you know, didn't get dressed until 
10.30 and spent a lot of time working on stuff that wasn't bad stuff to work on, but it wasn't what I planned to work on today. I mean, that's just today and it's one day. It's very hard to keep that in perspective, like with ADHD, like it just, it's so hard to see a day as just one day. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. I never got that concept until like the first week I ever took medication for ADD. It was actually a really crazy week at work. And I got to the end of it and I just had this like wild epiphany that I was like, wow, no, this was just a week. And like on Monday, another week will start and this week will end. And yeah. that sounds so dumb, but it was something that it was a concept that I had never wrapped my brain around before that I always sort of existed in this time blind, hyper focus, emotional thing that, you know, mm -hmm right now is just how it is. And there's no seeing out of that. Um, so there's definitely a symptom management part of this too, that if your ADD is, if your symptoms are out of control, then, you know, forget trying to troubleshoot your, you know, whatever's not working out. I mean, because you actually can't wrap your head around the concept that this, this one moment isn't forever. I mean, you have to be able to do that first and yeah, you know, whether that's like you go for a run <laughs> before you project your freak out into the world or what, um, you know, we're just recognizing when your medication is in effect and when it's not is that's yeah. definitely a big one that I, you know, there are certain things that I just have to know that if it's before or after that medication window, Yep. that I can't trust my reaction to this because it just, it might be way out of line. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, I mean, objectivity, like, I mean, I can't judge myself for that either. It's just, it is what it is. Well, and not to be weird, but um, I'm 40. And so now when I'm reacting to something, um, I have to ask myself, is there a hormonal issue happening right now? Yeah. So it's no estrogen. Um, I forget when it, yes, when estrogen levels go down, it affects your cognitive function a yes, lot. There's some and when it goes up, it's like taking an extra dose of your meds. It's crazy. Yeah. Like, there is some, I have read, there's not as much literature on it as I would hope, but there was something I read about for ADHD medications to work optimally, you have to have an almost mid-level range of estrogen in your bloodstream. Yeah. And very few of us every day of the cycle have a mid-level range. It's going to no. go. And sometimes so. when I'm not being productive, I am like, oh, shoot, you know, this, my medication is actually not helping as much probably because there's, you know, an estrogen decline in my, and it's just, it is what it is. And it, it's when I was exclusively breastfeeding, I was not on my medication and it was okay. But as soon as you, I mean, I'm sure you could have graphed this. As soon as my kids started eating some like food when he was seven months old, it was like my ADD symptoms increased like proportionally 
with how much solid food he ate until he was like 14 months old. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. I just yep. can't. I, I literally cannot manage this whole situation here with like being at home with an infant and not having my medication and no, but it, it was very, very weird because it was like such a clear illustration of how much our hormones can affect our ADHD symptoms. I actually fared pretty well while I was pregnant. I was much, strangely, most people aren't that way, but I was um, pretty emotionally stable when I was oh, pregnant. Yeah, I was like, I was chill. Yeah. I was pretty good. Like, you know, I'm not chill usually, but I, I was fine when I was pregnant. I felt great. Yeah. <laughs> All your hormones are a little higher probably while you're pregnant. And yeah, yeah. I, was, I was fine pregnant, but you're right. Nursing is a whole thing. And perimenopause is a whole thing. And it's all of it. Jacqueline and I went on to discuss what we thought we should call this podcast. And so we just decided on momming with emotional hyperfocus. As you can tell, we went all over the place. But the really great part of this conversation was that there are some really good tidbits of information from Jacqueline. And I think for me too, I don't like my podcast to be too long. So if this kind of conversation between women about parenting, about hormones, about managing ADHD, emotional things, if you like this kind of stuff, I encourage you to come over and check out the ADHD Enclave. It's my private community. The first 30 days are free and we are very friendly and we like to have a good time. As a matter of fact, we have a whole online winter retreat planned to make January a little less cold and blah. Come and check us out. You will not regret it. And like I always say, we are stronger together.